And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. Welcome to another episode of the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today, we want to talk about gaslighting. Many of you probably have heard that term before. Uh, gaslighting is a form of manipulation. This is off the Wikipedia page. Gaslighting is a form of manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group, hoping to make them question their own memory, perception, and sanity. Using persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction, and lying, it attempts to destabilize the target and delegitimize the target's belief. Now, we ought to talk about where this term originates. It's kind of an interesting story. It um, originates in the systemic psychological manipulation of a victim by her husband in the 1938 stage play Gaslight, known as Angel Street in the United uh, States, and the film adaptations released in 1940 and in 1944. In the story, a husband attempts to convince his wife and others that she is insane by manipulating small elements of their environment and insisting that she is mistaken, remembering things incorrectly or delusional when she points out these changes. The original title stems from the dimming of the gaslights in the house, that happened when the husband was using the gaslights in the flat above while searching for the jewels belonging to a woman whom he had murdered. The wife correctly notices the dimming lights and discusses it with her husband, but he insists that she has merely imagined a change in the level of illumination. So there's this, this play that becomes later an adaptation into a movie, and in, in fact, a couple of movies, and essentially this guy has committed murder. He's done something wrong. His wife's beginning to catch on to him. And so he goes through all these machinations of changing her environment, but acting as if nothing has changed so that she begins to think that she's crazy. And so you get the term gaslighting. And gaslighting is used within religious institutions when people discover 
that the narrative isn't right or that a prediction that religion makes doesn't come true. And all of a sudden we begin to change the definitions and change the history without ever telling the membership that we made a change and we act as if it had always been that way. And so today, more so than in other episodes, today I'm going to focus heavily on Mormonism because I'm going to go through an article that was written about gaslighting. And I think the article is brilliantly written, and I think it uses really good examples, and it will show, I think, conclusively what gaslighting is. If you belong to another religion and you're listening to this podcast, I apologize for the heavy dose of Mormonism in today's episode, but I'm hopeful that you can look at your own religion and pick out some of these uh, ideas as, and, and then see within your own religion the examples within your own faith of where this happened and how it happened and what it looked like. So the title of this article is Mormons, You Aren't Going Crazy. It's called Gaslighting. And here's how it begins. Did you laugh out loud when BYU claimed low demand as the reason it didn't sell caffeinated beverages until 2017? We did. Students have been asking for caffeine for years. I'm going to stop here for a second. I have a really good friend who, when he was at BYU as a student... And being the entrepreneurial mind that he is, he got creative and he put a, 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 a decent sized refrigerator in his dorm room, loaded it with caffeinated beverages, got the word out that he was selling caffeinated beverages on campus and students would then come to his dorm, knock on the door and purchase a cola. And he says he made pretty good money off of this, that there was a high demand for these beverages and he was constantly had an influx of people coming to him to buy beverages from him. Back to the article. BYU's statement completely sidestepped around the reality that caffeine consumption within the church has been a contentious issue. By not acknowledging the long-time controversy over whether caffeine is against the word of wisdom, BYU implied the decision to sell caffeinated soda was as unremarkable as the decision to add a Taco Bell on campus. I'm going to stop again. For those who are not LDS, who, those who are not Mormon, you have to understand the church has this dietary um, restrictions within its culture that it believes were handed down by God. And those restrictions are coffee, tea, alcohol, uh, tobacco, and other illegal drugs, right? Any kind of illegal drug would be perceived as immoral to partake of. Soda is not named specifically, and caffeine has never been labeled by the church as the reason, the absolute reason why some of these uh, substances are prohibited. But the church has always had this distanced relationship from cola and from caffeinated beverages. and And so... Um, BYU always prohibited caffeinated beverages on uh, campus in terms of the school selling it in their cafeteria uh, or there being a vending machine with it. Like Those were not there. And the demand for caffeinated beverages, the request for them had always been present. And there's people who always wanted to drink that stuff, but the church always kept it away. 
And then when it allows it suddenly in 2017, it acts as if nobody had ever requested it. So back to the article, this sleight of hand, this smoke and mirrors, this isn't reality. Caffeinated drinks at BYU marks a striking change in policy by BYU, which is also directly connected to the LDS church. To pretend it isn't, as the author points out, well, that's gaslighting. We already talked about the origination of the word. Uh, Today, psychologists use the term gaslighting to refer to behavior that undermines another person's perception of reality. A gaslighter uses tactics like denial, misdirection, deception, contradiction, and blame to confuse their victim and to maintain control in the relationship. Regardless of whether the gaslighting is intentional or unintentional, victims begin to doubt what they are seeing, remembering, or feeling. Consequently, they no longer know who to trust or what is real. Victims of repeated gaslighting often feel like they are going crazy. We laughed off the bureaucratic gaslighting that recently came from BYU. After all, whether students could buy caffeine on campus isn't really that important. We were completely caught off guard, however, when we recognized the LDS Church was gaslighting its members through a series of gospel topic essays. So again, I'll stop. For those who are not Mormon, the LDS Church has always told a certain story. And again, you can apply this to your religion. If it's Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, if it's Seventh-day Adventists, whatever it is. Every religion, and specifically within high-demand fundamentalist religions, Every religion has told a story about how it came to be and why it is the best of all the religions or the most right or the only true church. And what happened is, starting in like 2000, or even earlier than that, right? Like 1994, but all of a sudden the internet becomes this big thing. And little by little, the internet starts off as a place to kind of get your email and maybe participate in a, in a discussion board on AOL or something. But it gets to the point where you end up having these search engines like Google and Bing and, and suddenly all, all, I mean, everybody's on the internet and everybody's loading up information onto the internet. So by the time you hit 2000s, You essentially can find any piece of information that you want. And you can go back to original sources. And there's even images of these original documents. And there's multiple scholars and authors and social scientists talking about these issues. Historians are writing books and they're doing podcasts and doing interviews online. And suddenly all the information is out there. So when these religions tell a certain story... And suddenly you can now discover for yourself that that story isn't true. The religion has two choices. The religion can either say, uh, we messed up. Every, you know, much of what we've said or all of what we said or a lot of what we've said or little of what we've said doesn't hold up. And here's what doesn't hold up. And we're going to be vulnerable to that. And we're going to make changes. That rarely happens. Rarely. What instead happens is gaslighting, which is that the religion makes subtle and sometimes not so subtle changes 
and then pretends like that was the way they saw the world all along. And so in Mormonism, when the internet age hit, the church realizing that lots of members were beginning to question their history and question the narrative, the church releases uh, a set of gospel topic essays. That's what they call them. And each of these essays deals with a particular problematic issue within Mormonism's history, and it frames that issue in a new way, and that new way acknowledges some of the problems, whitewashes other parts of the problems, and then the church pretends like this is the way we've seen things all along. And so if you are growing up in a high-demand fundamentalist religion, you grow up learning a certain story, then suddenly your church having to deal with the internet age puts out some new subtle shift in the narrative, acts like it's been there all along, and you begin to question your sanity on why weren't you told that, and it must be your own fault, because obviously you didn't read enough, and had you searched further or read more church sources, you would have come across it too, and shame on you for holding this old view. And you're going to see that as we go through each of these. When we read the LDS gospel topic essays, we felt as if we had been transported into the dystopian society described in George Orwell's 1984, a place where history was literally rewritten to match new state-approved facts. The LDS church, for uh, which for decades has presented a neatly packaged Our Heritage, and Our Heritage is a book that Mormons use in their Sunday school that tells our history. It was a neatly packaged Our Heritage version of its history, but has now published a drastically different version without a unified explanation to its people as a whole. LDS church historian and recorder, Elder Stephen E. Snow, now he's a general authority. He is in the upper echelons of leadership, and he is in the know as far as how these decisions get made and what um, implications are going to be put into, uh, what, what, mechan- what machinations are going to be put into place and implications of those machinations that they're hoping for in order to make these shifts in the history. Uh, Elder Stephen E. Snow called the way the essays were released a soft launch, meaning this messier history was placed on LDS.org, the church's website, where internet search engines would find them, but a casual browser of the church website could not or would not find them. In other words, if, you're, if you knew the history was messy and you were trying to find answers and you knew what to look for, you could find these gospel topic essays. If you did not know that history was messy and you simply were spending time on the church's website, you were not going to come across these essays. It was intended to be findable by some and hidden to others. This strategy was intended to expose church members gradually to this new information and also be available for seminary teachers to inoculate their students. In other words, again, let's allow the old members of the church to continue believing the story we've told them all along, Let's tell the young kids a new story and not tell them that old narrative. And all the folks in between will be kind of hit and miss 
and unfortunately we're going to lose some of them when they know both stories, when they know the old narrative and learn the new narrative. Though these essays started being released in 2013, there has never been direct links to them from LDS.org's homepage. The essays were included in the 2017 Adult Sunday School curriculum as optional, optional supplements, but most teachers stuck with the traditional unmodified gospel doctrine teacher's manual. This is our Sunday school classes I'm talking about. Most active Latter-day Saints we've spoken with know little about the controversial content of these essays. Members, most members didn't know they were there, and the members who did didn't really read them, didn't really get into them, didn't feel any kind of encouragement to do that. There was kind of this almost this discomfort or feeling of of being threatened by these essays. And so members tended to just leave them alone. And some members even called these essays anti-Mormon. I've even heard multiple members of the church claim that somehow anti-Mormons had infiltrated the church website and put these essays on the church website, um, but that they were not true and somehow the church's website had been hacked, which all of that makes no sense, but it's the, it's the mechanisms our brain goes into in order to hold on to our sacred stories and our sacred beliefs. You can find this content if you Google search for gospel topic essays, a title which implies they are about routine subjects like prayer and faith, uh, but the content covered here is anything but routine. The essays present information never before seen in official church curriculum and facts only previously available in the anti-Mormon literature we as Latter-day Saints were warned not to read. For many active Latter-day Saints, these essays present an alternate version of reality. Uh, again, this article is on a website, Post-Mormon Mental Health. Uh, we're about to dive into the specific examples. I'm reading directly from the article. I give all credit uh, to the author of this article, um, but want to start tackling these issues. The author makes the comment in terms of this alternate version of reality. If you feel like that's what's happening to you, the author wants to be clear, you are not going crazy and you are not alone. Let's compare content from four of these essays with traditional LDS curriculum. The author starts with the issue of translation in historicity of the Book of Abraham. Again, if you don't understand Mormonism, Mormon, uh, Mormon theology and practice involves more than just one book of canon. While most Christians have the uh, Bible, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, Mormons have additional books primarily the Book of Mormon, but there are also other uh, sacred writings such as the Book of Moses, the Doctrine and Covenants, and lastly, the Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith, its founding leader, claimed to have come across some Egyptian uh, mummies and papyri, which is true, and he claims that this papyri, this Egyptian papyri, is written by Abraham, by his very own hand, they are his writings, and he just happens to come across these, and he then translates these writings into the book of Abraham. You're going to see how this story shifts. The book of Abraham is introduced as a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt. 
The writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. The current curriculum teaches that Joseph Smith studied the letters and grammar of the Egyptian language, and then with the help of the Holy Ghost, he translated the writings on the papyrus rolls. That is a quote from the church. In this context, the word translation unambiguously means reading Egyptian and writing the same thing in English. However, this essay, this Book of Abraham gospel topic essay, makes it clear that LDS and non-LDS scholars agree that the characters on the fragments do not match Joseph's translation. In other words, the story we always told is that Joseph translated this papyri, which had Egyptian on it. Translate. He looks at the characters on the pages. It's the writings of Abraham. And through the gift and power of God, he translates those characters into English, into what we have today as the book of Abraham. In this essay, the church admits that what is on the papyri does not match Joseph's translation. In fact, the papyrus fragments have nothing whatsoever to do with Abraham, but are parts of a standard funerary text that were deposited with mummified bodies. In other words, Joseph wasn't actually translating. The church has long taught that the book of Abraham is a product of Joseph's translation of Egyptian papyri. The new narrative concedes that the book of Abraham is not a product of Joseph's translation of Egyptian characters. Even more confusing is the implication that this doesn't matter, that we should believe in the book of Abraham as if it were literally translated. The church has changed its narrative about the origin of canonized scripture without official announcement to its members, without admitting error, and without correcting its curriculum. If you are confused why such monumental information is being buried among optional Sunday school materials as if it's nothing out of the ordinary, you are feeling the impact of gaslighting. We want you to know you are not going crazy. The next essay, the Book of Mormon Translation. Where did the Book of Mormon come from? Here's the story we were told. Quote, Gold plates were delivered to Joseph Smith, who translated them by the gift and power of God. Unquote. Throughout church curriculum, in music, art, videos, magazines, we saw Joseph Smith sitting at a table, studying the gold plates by candlelight, reading the translation to a scribe. However, the historical evidence presented in this essay effectively erases fundamental elements from this long-held narrative. According to the essay, Joseph did not need to look at the plates in order to translate, nor did he need the tool that had been, quote, kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord and, unquote, and, quote, handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages, unquote. Again, if you're not Mormon, the story we told Throughout our artwork, our music, magazine articles, our Sunday school curriculum, uh, throughout our scriptures, the story that we told was that Joseph Smith, when he got the gold plates out of the box on a hill in Palmyra, New York, 
Inside that box was not only those gold plates, but a pair of stones, transparent, translucent, fastened with a bow that looked somewhat like glasses that Joseph referred to as the Urim and Thummim, which is sometimes called the Nephite spectacles, that ancient peoples on the American continent passed these spectacles down from generation to generation, and they were buried with the plates, and that, and that they were buried with the plates for the intent purpose of, tr- of being the tool by which Joseph would eventually translate the Book of Mormon. Joseph acknowledges that they were there, other witnesses talk about them, and the church takes only the testimonies of these spectacles being used and implements them into their narrative. Every Latter-day Saint who stayed within the church curriculum grew up with the story that Joseph translated the plates by looking through these Nephite spectacles, looking through the Nephite spectacles at the gold plates and translating them into English. Even the Book of Mormon itself tells the story of these spectacles being passed down. The trouble is now we know that the actual way that Joseph translated the 531 pages that we have today as the Book of Mormon is that Joseph took a rock a rock that he received while digging a well in 1822 and which he used extensively in his practice of treasure digging as a peepstone. He puts this rock into a hat, buries his face into it, excluding all light, and then says that he was able to translate the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God through that mechanism. So we ought to recognize that the LDS Gospel Topic essay effectively erases fundamental elements of this long-held narrative. According to the essay, Joseph did not need to look at the plates in order to translate, nor did he need the tool that had been kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord and handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. Instead, Joseph put his face into a hat and read the words as they appeared on a brown seer stone a stone he found while digging a well and which he had previously used for divining the locations of fictional buried treasure and fictional guardian spirits. Which, by the way, off this, off this article, which, by the way, the gold plates are a buried treasure and the angel Moroni is a guardian spirit. In this narrative, you had consistently been taught gold plates... And these, and these Nephite spectacles were essential to Joseph's ability to bring forth the Book of Mormon. In the new narrative, Joseph not only doesn't need to look at the plates, he can disregard the sacred tools the Lord gave him and turn to an ordinary object, turn an ordinary object into a translation tool. Apparently, it doesn't matter if the sacred is swapped with the commonplace. Behind the scenes, the old translation story is being replaced with the new. If you are looking for images online and you realize the image of Joseph translating with the plates beside him has disappeared, we want you to know you are not going crazy. History is being rewritten without being corrected. Without a doubt, this is gaslighting. The next essay is the first vision accounts. 
Church curriculum has consistently told the story of the first vision, recorded in 1838, about Joseph Smith when he was 14 years old in 1820, that he wanted to know which church to join, and offered a prayer in a sacred grove. In response, both Heavenly Father and Jesus appeared, telling him that none of the churches were true. Why Joseph prayed, and what happened after he prayed, are presented as meaningful details of this story. This essay ushers in a new reality, revealing that there are multiple versions of the first vision, while claiming the accounts tell a consistent story. When we read the actual accounts, however, we realize there were significant differences between them. In the earliest account, written by Joseph in 1832, the purpose of Joseph's prayer was not to know which of all the sects was right, but rather to seek personal forgiveness. In fact, Joseph Smith reveals he had determined by reading the scriptures that none of the churches were true before he prayed. The question of which church to join wasn't even on his mind. Furthermore, and I think more importantly, only one personage, the Lord, appears. Joseph does not describe seeing Heavenly Father's body or hearing him speak. Unless the purpose of Joseph's prayer and who appeared after he prayed, are no longer important details of the story, the 1832 and 1838 accounts are not consistent. If you read the 1832 account and don't even recognize it as the first vision, we want you to know that you are not going crazy. For the church to present these accounts as consistent when they differ in the very details the church has long taught matter most is flagrant gaslighting. The last essay they want to talk about in this article is Plural Marriage in Kirtland in Nauvoo. Church curriculum, again, the correlated material that the church puts out, had always portrayed Joseph as having one wife, his beloved Emma. However, in this gospel topic essay, you read that Joseph Smith had more than 30 wives. He also engaged in polyandry, the practice of marrying women who were already married to other men. This essay also concedes that some of Joseph's marriages included sexual relations. One of the footnotes of the essay led us to Todd Compton's uh, book, quote, In Sacred Loneliness, The Plural Wives of Joseph Smith, unquote, here we discovered additional details that have been omitted from the Our Heritage version of church history. Here are just a few. 1. Joseph's first known relationship outside of his marriage with Emma was transacted with 16-year-old housemaid Fanny Elger and took place before the priesthood sealing keys were restored, and both Oliver Cowdery and Emma Smith referred to the relationship as an affair. Number two, Joseph Smith generally hid his marriages from Emma. For a short time in 1843, Emma cons consented to let the prophet Joseph Smith marry other women on the condition that she could pick the women. When she chose two particular women who happened to be sisters, they're the Partridge sisters, these sisters had already previously been sealed slash married 
to Joseph without Emma's knowledge. She then gives permission, not knowing that, for Joseph to marry these two young ladies. And Joseph arranged for a mock marriage slash sealing again in front of Emma rather than tell her the truth. Number three, when Joseph requested 14-year-old Helen Mar Kimball's hand in marriage, he promised the marriage would ensure her eternal salvation and exaltation and that of her father's household and all of her kindred. Joseph gave Helen Mar Kimball 24 hours to decide as a 14-year-old kid. Joseph Smith gave 14-year-old Helen Mar Kimball 24 hours to decide if she would offer herself in exchange for her family's salvation. Helen was the youngest, but not the only teenage girl Joseph pressured to quickly answer his proposal. And based on the date that Joseph and Emma were sealed, Joseph had been sealed to over 20 other women before he was sealed to Emma. In short, the church curriculum has not only omitted Joseph's polygamy and polyandry, but also the ways Joseph was both deceptive and coercive. Any other members of the church who behaved this way would be excommunicated. And rather than condemning Joseph's methods, the church excuses them, suggesting that the Lord did not give exact instructions on how to practice polygamy. If you haven't heard of polyandry and you recognize there is no doctrinal foundation for it, we want you to know you are not going crazy. For the church to reveal Joseph's behavior as if it's in alignment with a man of honesty and high moral character is gaslighting. Equally troubling, the church continues to imply that if you didn't know this new narrative, it's your own fault. Because long-term and well-read members historians and church leaders, have known about it for years. For an institution to blame members for not knowing the things that the institution deliberately omitted, and I want to step in here and say, never in its correlated material ever talked about. And keep in mind that Mormonism encourages its members to distrust anything outside of its correlated material. So again, for not knowing the things that the institution has deliberately omitted and never, ever had in its correlated materials is further gaslighting. Here's the article's conclusion. The examples above are only a small representation of gaslighting felt by many members who read the essays as well as the footnotes and original documents referenced within. Over and over again, It feels like the church is saying, information we previously told you was anti-Mormon. We are now telling you is true. Even though you may have misled others because you trusted us, we take no responsibility. If members are confused, the implication is that something is wrong with the members, not the information, nor the way it was presented. As members of the church, we have been continuously taught to wholeheartedly trust the servants of God to never lead us astray. However, leaders are not directly and explicitly teaching the members about the essays, and each congregation or ward has been left to fend for itself. Some members believe the whitewashed Our Heritage version of church history, Others believe the new gospel topic version of church history, and many members have no idea what to believe 
or who to trust anymore. This divides members and hurts relationships. By failing to make an official announcement, current church leaders have placed an incredible burden on members of the church who know the narrative. Without apology, the LDS Church has made its members responsible to reconcile conflicting historical narratives without giving them the authority to do so. If you are a member of the church feeling this burden, we want you to know there is nothing wrong with you. The narrative the church is telling about its history has changed. In this new, messier version of history, calls into question not only the essential truth claims of the church, but whether the church is truthful. Most concerning of all, though, is the church's willingness to confuse and divide its own people rather than admit and repent of false teachings. This is gaslighting. If you feel this is unethical and unacceptable, we don't blame you. You are not going crazy. You are not alone. So that's the end of the article. And and I hope Again, if we listen to this, we'll see this in a thousand places, both if you're Mormon within Mormonism, but as well as if you're not in Mormonism, you see this in your own faith. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, predict the coming of Christ on multiple occasions. And when Jesus doesn't show up, the the Jehovah's Witness faith then changes what it means for that prophecy to have taken place and then acts as if that should have been the expectation all along. We ought to recognize this mechanism is abusive and unhealthy, and it is unacceptable for any religion that claims to be working with God to hurt people and to betray them and to lose their trust and to do so without any admittance of having done so in other words, by doing gaslighting. This has been the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, Stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church, first I want to change the question, there are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. I think we'd also have to be honest, there may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. 